Well, good morning. Again, my name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor. I want to welcome you to Mercy House. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts this semester, and we are in the bottom part of chapter 10. Uh, so you may want to look that up in the Bibles there on the floor or on your phone. Um, but that's, that's where we're going to be. And elementary age kids, can, I've, been, I've been out one week and I'm forgetting to make the announcement. Uh, elementary age kids can go down too for the, for the Mercy House class. Bye guys. So we, I've been pointing you to what I've been calling the thesis statement of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus tells the disciples before he ascends into heaven that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses and those, those witnessing uh, experiences are going to be happening in J Jerusalem, which is where they are, and then Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem, or what, what Jerusalem is a part of, and then Samaria, which is the very next region, and some folks that they don't necessarily want to hang out with, and then the end of the earth. And it's a big vision. I mean, that's a worldwide movement kind of a, of a vision. And you would think, okay, so Jesus has a worldwide movement vision, it must have a, a really intricate, sophisticated kind of a business plan that's going to accomplish that worldwide movement, right? Begin with the end in mind, a worldwide movement, and then reverse engineer back. Here's all the things that we've got to do to make this happen. But it's actually very simple. <laughs> he says, I need witnesses and I need the Holy Spirit. That's all I got. That's it. That's the plan. Now go. Do it. And these witnesses are oppressed, uneducated, poor, powerless people. They're not the kind of people that you would think of first, maybe, to be a worldwide movement. But th this is who Jesus has, has chosen. And then on top of that, they're prejudiced. That doesn't seem to bode well for a worldwide movement. They're, they're prejudiced against people that are not like them. And they don't really move out of Jerusalem. After they hear the gospel, the Spirit comes, they, there's, there's converts, they gather in a church. They don't leave. They don't even go to Judea, much less Samaria, and definitely not the ends of the earth. And God uses all kinds of things to move them out of Jerusalem into those other parts. With, with the gospel. Now, what is, what is prejudice? So, so this is the definition that, that I'm using. An unfavorable opinion of someone that's not based on experience or reason. All right, so an unfavorable opinion of someone that's not based on reason or experience. And it shouldn't surprise us that these early Christians were prejudiced because they're ordinary people, and ordinary people are prejudiced. I mean, even Peter, the leader of the apostles, the leader of this movement, has an opinion that God doesn't love Gentiles as much as He loves the Jews. And he has this thought that it's a lot harder for those Gentiles to come to faith in Christ than the Jews. Maybe impossible, if he's really honest. So again, it, it doesn't bode well for this worldwide movement. 
Now, not only are there some, some prejudice that they're experiencing, but, but there's also some Old Testament ways of thinking that they're having to shed to move into New Testament ways of thinking. God had created a people separate from all other nations. And you can read about that all throughout the Old Testament. One of those places where that's described is Leviticus 20, verse 23. And this is on the screen here, I think. Yep. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. So some of what they've been doing in terms of their relationship with other peoples is actually following the Bible. They've been separating themselves. And the, the, the thinking in the Old Testament was actually that the nations would come and see what God was doing in the nation of Israel. And that's the Old Testament way of witness. And God was wanting Israel to be a witness of His reality to the nations. He's always had a heart for the nations. From day one, he, 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 was, he, was, he was calling his people to be a witness to the nations. But the Old Testament way was more of a come and see. And the New Testament way is a go and tell. That even when the New Testament church gathers, they gather with this sense of we're now going to be sent out and scatter, right? We're going to be on a mission as we leave this place. This is part of why I send you out at the end of every service. And so you have that sense of, okay, we've gathered and we've been built up, we've been instructed, we've been encouraged, now we go. We are sent to wherever it is that God has placed us. Jesus describes the church in different ways. He says they're the salt of the earth, they're the light of the world. Again, there's this sense of go and tell, not just a come and see. And Christians can pull that off while Old Testament Believers couldn't because Christians have the Holy Spirit residing inside of them. They're a temple, Paul calls us, walking around, portable temple. You don't go to the temple, you are the temple. And so because you have God's Holy Spirit, His sanctifying spirit, making you a, a holy one, a, a saint, that's what saint means, holy one, a hagios, you can now be sent out into an unholy world and you can maintain your holiness. You don't have to just be a come and see community, you can be a go and tell. But that was a hard shift for Old Testament believers. And honestly, it's like the hardest job that the Holy Spirit has in the book of Acts is transitioning those Old Testament believers into New Testament believers that will go and tell, and not just go and tell to the people that look like them, sound like them, but actually to the end of the earth. And so he has to use a lot of different things at his disposal to get them out of Jerusalem and send, send them to the end of the earth. He uses angels, dreams, visions, audible voices, even persecution. I mean, honestly, they don't leave Jerusalem until they see one of their peeps, Stephen, getting stoned to death. And they, they think, we're leaving, right? And then they start to tell people in Judea and Samaria about the gospel. Now, Tommy taught the first part of Acts chapter 10 last week. Excellent sermon, by the way. And it's on SoundCloud. You can go to our website or, or um, look, look for it on, on SoundCloud. But here's the 
here's just the summary so you kind of get the background, is that Cornelius, this guy who's just like a day's walk from Peter, and he, he is a God-fearer. He's a Gentile, he's a non-Jew, but he's a God-fearer. Right? He's got some sense of the, the, the God of the Jews, and he prays to that God as best he knows how. And so he's got a little bit of preparation for the message of the gospel, which is what we're seeing. Right? If you were here for the Ethiopian eunuch sermon, you, the, you see he's prepared. He's got some sense of uh, the God of Israel and the Messiah that is to come. Now, in order to get Peter to go tell Cornelius about the gospel, God has to give him first a vision of this sheet that comes down, and it has all these unclean animals that are not kosher, right? They are against Old Testament eating laws, and in this vision, Peter is told to kill and eat the unclean animals. And Peter's like, no, Lord, which is a weird phrase, right? You shouldn't say that, right? No, Lord, that, that, just, that doesn't work. You say, yes, Lord, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, no, Lord, I'll never do that. And then God, in the vision, brings it back down again a second time. And then he's like, no, no, and third time, and then I guess third time's a charm because at that point he's like, okay, I'm open to bacon. Like, like I think <laughs> I've been wanting to eat bacon, and I, so I'm, I'm open to it. So then the vision's over, and then he, he's, then he gets a, a, a message from the Holy Spirit. So this is like a direct kind of thing, and, and the Holy Spirit is saying to him, there's going to be three guys that are going to knock on your door, and you should go with them. And that's it. That's the only message. And then knock, knock, knock. And guess who it is? Three guys. And they explain to him, hey, our master Cornelius, he's a God-fearer, he's praying, he got a vision, an angel came to him and said, go get this guy named Peter who's in Joppa, and he's at a tanner's house. And so there they are. And, and he's like, okay, I'm going to go with him. And so, and so Peter goes with him. And, and, and he, what we are going to look at is what happens when he gets to Cornelius' house. Um, and so it's going to answer, it answers a lot of questions, but it's going to answer a couple of questions at least that we're going to look at today. So one is, why is it not okay for Christians to be prejudiced? Why is that not okay? Right. And then the other is, how would God have us treat people once we do get over our prejudice? You see both of those in this story. Why it's not okay, and what you do once you get over the prejudice. Now, why is it not okay? Now, you might think that's a dumb question. That is a dumb question. Of course it's not okay, right? It's not okay for anyone to be prejudiced. And I would agree, Christian or not. But why not? Why is it wrong? It's interesting to watch the culture, which is primarily secular, rage against racism. It's like, why? Why is that wrong? If, if our culture in general has bought into evolutionary naturalism, which is the idea that somehow chaos out of billions of years has somehow come to order, and in that order we have what we have now, and then we say there are certain things in that chaos that are wrong. And it's like, why? I mean, if I'm an evolutionary naturalist and I'm going to be consistent with my worldview, I, I should say whatever's best for me and my people, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to survive. And the naturalist would push back and would say, well, it's actually better for you if you're not racist. 
If, if you are good to all people, long term, and it's sort of a utilitarian argument, right? But as always, utilitarian arguments, I think, are a bit flat, right? I mean, John Locke, bless his heart, social contract, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know. It, it just seems a little flat that for a utilitarian reason, you should do things that are going to cause you to lose resources and other people to get those resources. But Peter's not an evolutionary naturalist. Neither are we. And so we think about Peter's journey. After he's seen this vision of eating unclean animals and he's been told to go with these people, he's got about a 40-mile journey to, to this place where he's going to meet up with Cornelius. And it's about a day's, so, so this is like a day journey, like, like 10 hours of walking. And I think he's got a lot of time to think. And, and he's pondering. And I'm sure he's thinking about what Jesus taught him, things that Jesus said. I'm sure he's thinking about that commission in Acts 1-8, go to the end of the earth, right? Which he hasn't. He really hasn't left Jerusalem hardly. And he's also thinking about bacon, right? Like, I get to eat bacon. And I need to tell the Gentiles about Jesus. But I think there's more in, that's going on in his mind than, than just that. And, and actually, we know what's going on in his mind. And, and the, we see what comes out of his mouth when he gets to Cornelius' house, because I think this is so interesting, because I think it is what he's been thinking about and what he's been preparing. And I'm sure he's scared, because he's going into a home that's a Gentile home. He has not done that. He's not eaten food with Gentile people. He's never done this. And he's going to go in that home, and he's going to break through barriers that he has never broken through really, before in his life. And so he gets to the house, he comes in, and the first thing he says, Peter opened his mouth. I think this is an interesting way to open this up, right? Verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is, is acceptable to Him. It's such an interesting opening for a preacher, right? Like, he's supposed, a preacher's supposed to help other people understand, right? He's, he's supposed to explain stuff. And Peter, he walks in, he goes, I understand. God's been preaching to me for the last 10 hours. And what I'm understanding is that God shows no partiality. Now, you would think, of course, you should have known that. I mean, you could have seen that in the Old Testament, actually, and you certainly could have seen it in the teachings of Jesus. But it hadn't really clicked. I mean, he might have been able to, like, give a little seminar on it and say it, but, but for some reason it hadn't clicked that God shows no partiality. He doesn't show preferential treatment to anyone, right? This is a world-shattering statement. Now, for us, we're like, duh. But I'm telling you, in the ancient world... Everyone showed preferential treatment to their own group. And so did their gods and goddesses. Their gods and goddesses were attached to a people group. They were attached to a geographical location. Nobody thought about their god being the god of everyone. And that that god not showing preferential treatment to one group over and against another. And obviously this is, this is not the... God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, we've been saying this, he's supracultural. 
He, he is over and above all human beings as the creator, the sustainer. There's no, no partiality in him. Now, what, what does it mean? He says it shows no partiality. Well, he says he gives acceptance to anybody who will fear him and do what he says. Which also implies that he rejects anyone who does not fear him and does not do what he says. That, that's part of him not being partial. Now, if you think about these two pieces, the fear and do what he says. Like, fear him, that's, that's talking about the vertical relationship that one has with God. And, and when you see fear, fearing God in the Bible, it, it's not like, I'm, I'm so scared to death, I don't want to interact with him. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. We're, we're talking about reverence. We're talking about worship. We're talking about seeing him as the ultimate and, and, and that he, he is an end in and of himself. He's not some sort of means that I try to manipulate so that I can get what I want. He, he is God. And so as I'm worshiping him, that then, if, if, it's a, if it's an authentic worship, it then overflows into my life. And then I, 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 my, what I do in the horizontal is impacted by what I'm doing in the vertical. And I do what he says. If I don't fear him, I don't reverence him, I don't worship him, I don't do what he says. This is, this is really, it shows dignity to human beings. He's been doing this since the garden when he created human beings. Like Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He approaches them according to their God-given dignity, and he, and he says, if you, if you accept me, you stay under my good authority, you're going to get life. If you reject me and you go out from under my good authority, you're going to get death. No, no partiality. Right? You fear me, you don't fear me. There's consequences for both. So the reason we, we, we can't be prejudiced is because God's not prejudiced. God shows no partiality. All human beings are His image bearers. And He gives them the dignity that they deserve. Which again is accepting Him and receiving life or rejecting Him and receiving death. It doesn't matter who you are. Those are the terms of being a human being before the face of God. So Christians must refuse to dehumanize anyone, right? To treat anyone less than human or treat one group with preferential treatment over another. They cannot do that. They cannot do that because of race. They cannot do that because of culture. They can't do that because of language, age, waist size, gender, religion, a, a political opinion, right? They treat everyone with dignity, no matter if they're acting in dignified ways. <laughs> they give them dignity. Uh, you, you read this in the, the opening, the preamble of, of our Declaration of Independence, right? This idea, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are li life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson writes that. Now, full disclosure, he owned slaves, and he was a deist and not a Christian, okay? But I think he got some things right in that paragraph. And you think, it, it, seems, it feels weird to us now in our secular age to look at that 
and, 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 and go, why is he tying rights into a creator? And I'm saying, you cannot have rights without a creator. You can't. There's, there's going to be preferential treatment. There's going to be prejudice by one group over and against another unless our understanding of reality is rooted in God who shows no preferential treatment. Right? The slogan, Black Lives Matter, is right because they do matter. But why do they matter? And the reason they matter is because God created human beings who have black skin, and he said they're very good. He created human beings with brown skin and said they are very good. And yes, he created people with white skin and said they are very good. They, they should be treated with dignity. And again, we hear the, the, the dignity. It, it's the dignity of, 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 of living before the face of God and living on his terms, of accepting him or rejecting him and reaping the consequences of that. Now, what the worst injustice of all is when that prejudice, that preferential treatment, causes one to not give the gospel to certain groups of people. That is the greatest injustice. I, I know that economic injustice occurs and it matters, but it's not, it's not the ultimate injustice. The ultimate injustice is, is, is that we would not give the gospel to someone because they're different than us. And that's what we have in this Acts 10 passage. Peter's sitting around Jerusalem drinking kosher coffee and, and not leaving Jerusalem to take the gospel to people who need it. And it's, it's because he, he's prejudiced. It's because he's got some Old Testament stuff that's hanging on. And it's not okay. And Jesus does not think it's okay. And so Jesus does what it takes to get him out of Jerusalem and get him to bring the gospel to people. I, I was spending some time... So this last two weeks has just been like conference time for me. I spoke at two conferences, and then I went to a pastor's conference and, and uh, got to meet some interesting people. And so I got to meet Jeremy, who is a, uh, a missionary uh, in China. And he works uh, with the Uyghur people, the Uyghur people. So the Uyghur people are uh, about 12 million strong. Most of them live in the northwest corner of China. And they are Muslim. They are Muslim. Um, you might, you know, they're, they're Turkish. You wouldn't expect maybe uh, that large of a group to, uh, to live in China, but they are an officially recognized minority group in China. Uh, there are 55 different minority groups, and 0.01% of the Uyghur people are Christians. They are, that's, that's not very many. Those of you that are not mathematicians, it's not, it's not very many. So Jeremy, who grew up in New England some and some in Oklahoma, uh, he and his family have, have been there for years working among the Uyghur people and learning their language. And uh, a few months back, they got kicked out. Uh, the Chinese government came to them, took them to the police station, uh, interviewed them, and decided, we think you're a threat to our country. Right? And that was because they're trying to share Jesus with Muslims, and they were afraid something was going to blow up and things would happen. And so they, they, forced, they forced them out. So what do they do? They just hop over the border. They start ministering to the people in Kazakhstan because there's uh, about a million or so that live in Kazakhstan. And so they start sharing the gospel with them there. And, and then they, they, they interact with some other uh, mission organizations. So they're with the International Mission Board, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, what we're part of. 
And then they got together with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And then they got together with SIM, another mission organization. And so now they've relocated into, into Thailand. And uh, they are all working on a Bible translation so that the Uyghur people can read the Bible in their language. And they're doing it through an app. Isn't that awesome? And so they will work on one book of the Bible, and they'll get it, they'll get it done, and then they just pump it out on the app. And, and, and hundreds of people are reading this Bible translation, and they're hearing about Jesus, and they're hearing about the gospel through this app. And so I'm at this table, and we're having this conversation, and, and there's a, 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 some folks that are from China that are at the table, and they're, they're asking him about it. And they say, well, why is it that, like, American types are doing this mission work? Like, why, don't, why, why isn't it being done by the Chinese church? And, and he, he said, because this group is kind of invisible to the Chinese church. And it reminded me of this passage, right? Now, I don't think if we, you know, ask folks in the Chinese church and we said, I mean, some of you have been a part of that, that, that are from China, you say, hey, why, why don't you tell the Uyghur people about Jesus? I don't think they say, well, I just, I hate them, and I don't think they're in the image of God. They're, they're just showing preferential treatment to those that are of their culture, right? But, of course, Americans, we wouldn't do that, would we? Of course we would, and we have. Well, you know, we, we, we've just recognized uh, the, the date, 50-year date of, of MLK's uh, death. And you know, when 1955, he's like looking for a place to do his seminary work, and he would probably have preferred to be in a more Bible-based, gospel-preaching kind of a seminary, but he couldn't go to that semin- those kind of seminaries because they wouldn't let black people go there. And that was just 75 years ago in this country. And, and so, 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 again... We're, Prejudice is part of this fallen world, and we're, we're oftentimes so blind to it. And again, what, what, what it results in is certainly all kinds of economic injustice and, and hurt, but the worst thing that it, it can result in is not getting the gospel to folks because we're, we're prejudiced, or at least preferring some other groups above our own. And again, we're all prejudiced, right? Even if we're the oppressed minority, we're prejudiced. Peter's the oppressed minority. Think about it. God's like, I want you to go tell the gospel to a Roman centurion. I think that's the, the, on, on, on Peter's least likely person to talk to and be in their house. The Romans have oppressed the Jews to no end. And God's saying, yeah, yeah, I know. I know, Peter. I know. They got got you under their thumb. I don't care. I want you to go talk to them about Jesus. And so the the call is to all of us. doesn't matter where we fit. (laughs) It's everyone. It's every Christian is, is being called to move toward those who are other, right? And so what do we do once we get over it? Well, look at, look at what Peter does, right? Verse 37, after he says, I understand, right? He says, you yourselves, so now he's, a, now he's talking to, to Cornelius, this is verse 37, and all the people that are in the house, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now, all of Luke's reports of sermons are probably brief summaries. That's a short sermon. You're probably wishing, I wish Robert would do those kind of short sermons, right? Um, <clears throat> but probably a summary. But it's a good summary. I mean, think about it. He starts with the life of Jesus. He's baptized, anointed by the Holy Spirit. He does good. He heals. He drives out demons. Like, that sounds like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know? Like, like that's a lot of, of great summary of Jesus' life. And then he says, we were witnesses to this, right? He was told to be a witness. He's being a witness. He's like, hey, look, I saw this stuff. But he doesn't stop there, right? He, he says uh, in verse 39, he says that he was killed on a tree. He was death by crucifixion. Uh, Cornelius knows all about that. He's probably seen a few. He may have even participated in a few. And he knows. He knows that, that Jesus was crucified. But then he says, but he was resurrected too. And we saw that too. We ate with him. The resurrected one, we ate. With him, remember? Fish on the, on the beach? Yeah, that was amazing. And so he doesn't just say he's a great teacher. He's got a lot of religious ideas that are really helpful. He's like, he died, and he rose from the dead. And then he mentions that he is the ascended king overall, right? He says, he says that God appointed him to be judge of the living and the dead. Great summary of, of the gospel. Jesus lived, he died, he resurrected. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And, and at this point, I think Cornelius may be thinking, this is bad news. Wasn't Jesus Jewish? What, wasn't Jesus the, the Messianic king that the Jews were waiting for to reestablish the country of, of Israel and to get rid of the Romans? Like, like, is this good news? Is this bad news? I think it sounds like bad news at this point. But look at what Peter says in verse 43. This is great big finish to his sermon, to him all the prophets, that's folks in the Old Testament that spoke on behalf of God, they bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone, Cornelius. Jesus is not just a Jewish Messiah, he's Messiah for everyone. He's come to save everyone from their sins. He shows no partiality. All are sinners, no matter what culture they come from. All need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. This is an awesome evangelistic sermon. I think Peter's improving, right? Like, like the first sermon he gives, this is so funny to me. He gets done, he doesn't tell them what to do, and they say, what must we do to be saved? And he's like, oh yeah, forgot that part. Repent! <laughs> you know? And here he gets to the end of this one, and he's like, believe! Believe! Exercise saving faith! in this Savior King. And they do. And they do before Peter can even talk to him or pray with him or anything. They do. 
right there in that moment. As they hear the gospel, they believe and they exercise saving faith. And how do they know that? Well, they know that because this is what happens in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, I love this. He's still trying to preach. He's still trying to, to, to continue the sermon. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Right? They, they, they were converted in that moment. They heard the gospel. They received it by faith. The way you know that is because the Holy Spirit came to dwell in them. That's what happens when you are converted. That's what happens when it's a real conversion. God's Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. Now, not everyone then begins speaking in tongues, but in this particular instance, they do, and these tongues are ecstatic utterances. They're not a human language. They're a language that's a heavenly language, and and it's a sign that says that the Holy Spirit has showed up. And Peter knows that sign. He's seen that sign. He's experienced these things, and he sees it happening, and his peeps that are with him are going, no way! Gentiles? Becoming Christians? Are you serious? This is really happening? Yeah, it is. It's happening, just like Jesus said it would, that, that you'd be witnesses, and those, that witness would go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. And even though it's like 40 miles for them culturally, they're at the end of the earth. They're standing in a house of a Roman centurion preaching the gospel. And the Roman centurion and his family are, are responding with saving faith and experiencing the power of, power of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter does is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, he says to them, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who, are, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him, to remain for some days. It's a beautiful moment. He sees them trusting in Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit, and he says, we we need to baptize you. We need to baptize you. And that baptism means a lot, okay? So so it, it means that they are reconciled with God, but it also means they're reconciled with their brothers and sisters in Christ, including those Jewish men that are standing there in that house. That that the shalom of God has come. Right? That the Lord Jesus Christ, he uses that phrase earlier in the text, the divine king who's our savior has come to bring peace, shalom. And that's been ushered in by what Christ has done on the cross. And he's watching it before his very eyes. And then they say, remain a few days. I'm pretty sure they did. And I'm pretty sure they ate bacon. Right? He, he, he didn't just put his toe in the Gentile house. He slept on their couch. He ate their food. He laughed. He got to know them. He played with their kids. He told them more about Jesus, that he loved so much, and now they loved so much, and now they were in fellowship with one another. This is, this is gospel, man. It's a beautiful, powerful thing. So what do we do with all this? Why is it not Okay. For us to be prejudiced and knowing that we all are, okay? So just know that's, that's part of the indwelling sin. It's part of being a, 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 a person, a human in a, a fallen body and in a fallen world. And knowing that, 
We, we repent of that. We confess of that. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand that. It's not okay. And the reason it's not okay is because God is not prejudiced. He's not partial. And so if we're going to represent the gospel well, then we need to show no partiality. And what do we do when we get over that? We share Jesus. We share Jesus. We both demonstrate Jesus and we proclaim Jesus. So it's not just talking, it's, it's living the gospel out. But as we do that, we also tell the gospel to people. And honestly, for, I think for millennials, for a lot of you guys that are in this room, uh, the whole, we're not, we don't want to be prejudiced, that resonates with you. You're like, yeah, that is right on. I love that vision. But when I say, and then you need to tell them about Jesus, you're like, eh. I would think more like doing a cultural exchange. Like maybe Peter would walk in and go, hey, what did you Romans do in your religion? Oh, that's wonderful. That's not Christian. That's not Christian. Now, on some level, just sharing life and getting to know other religions, nothing wrong with that. But, but we're walking in, in, in in the name of the King of Kings, the cosmic King Jesus. He is king over heaven and earth. And if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Sorry. If you're thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm into Jesus, but, but he, he's, he's my thing and other people have their thing, that's not Christianity. He is the sovereign king over everything, over heaven and earth. That's part of what Peter was telling Cornelius, which is pretty, that's a pretty tough pill to swallow. When Peter walks in and goes, there's a Lord Jesus Christ to a Roman centurion who serves Caesar. And Peter's saying, eh, Caesar, I know the Lord Jesus Christ. He is judge over the living and the dead. And so for some of us, it, it's, it's, this, this moving toward the other may not be that hard of a thing for us. We actually we value that and we love that and we enter into that. But the part we're struggling with is being truthful about what's real and about Jesus and who He really is. And so both of those, I think, are incredibly challenging things to us. And so what do we do? I mean, I, I think our, our reaction to it, for some of us, we're just so afraid or overwhelmed. Like, where do I start? And then some of us are just apathetic. Like, oh, that was a nice sermon in Acts where they talked about pressing toward other people, and then you just go back to your life with hanging out with all the people that are just like you. And you don't really feel that anything compelling you to do anything different. So, so what are we going to do to, to get over that hump and to press in and follow Peter's example? I think for some of us, we, we'd have to have an angel show up. And say, you need to go 40 miles and go to this house. But that's not God's usual mode, okay? <laughs> what He does is He gives us His Word, and that Word convicts us, and then we repent. And I think we should take a note from Peter and Cornelius, too. What, what, what are they doing? What is Peter doing that, that gets him to the place where he's willing to press into some of this? Is that he's praying, and then he's obeying. And I think that might be a good application for today, is to take this word that we've heard, don't be overwhelmed by it, don't, don't, don't be uh, afraid of it, don't, don't allow yourself to become apathetic to it, 
but to pray. And then, and then whatever God does initiate with you, obey. Because if we are a Christian, then we do. We fear God. We worship God. We reverence God. And that overflows into our daily life where we obey. And we live in a way that we would have never lived had we been left to our own devices. Amen? We're actually going to have a time of prayer this week as a church. I want to encourage you to come to this. I want to encourage you, if you're a member of the church, especially to come to this. On Thursday, 5.30, right here, we're going to be gathering to pray. We're, we're also encouraging people, if they're willing, to fast leading up to that prayer time. And so Wednesday, afternoon, Wednesday dinner, most of us are going to, we're going to skip that dinner. We're going to skip the next breakfast, the next lunch. We're going to come together to pray on Thursday night, and then we're going to break the fast together. So I want to encourage you to do that. And the reason we do that, one, is that we communicate weakness. If you've ever fasted, you, you know, you feel weak. Because that is indeed what we are. We're weak. And so it's a, it's a helpful reminder. When we're not eating, we feel weak. And, and, it, and it causes us to go before God and say, I'm weak, I'm weak, I can't do this. It also causes us to depend on God. Right? Because we usually depend on food. <laughs> Feeling guilty, Eat. Feeling tired, eat, right? Or drink coffee here, right? But in this scenario, when you're fasting, you, you have to say, God, I can't go to my usual food to overcome stuff. I'm going to go to you. And so we, we depend on him. And so again, let's, let's pray, let's fast, let's, let's obey. And let's do that in, in the areas that we've talked about this morning or any other areas that God is convicting us about this morning, the way he's been, he's been speaking to us, maybe before we even got into the room today. We're reminded of this reality of the shalom of God every time we come to this table. And we are reminded of what is at the center of that shalom, right? We, we're reminded of, of Jesus on the night in which he's betrayed, takes bread, breaks it, gives it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant. Right? Even in that moment, he's saying, things are changing, guys. We're moving from come and see to go and tell. New covenant that comes from my blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins, all sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And then they ate that together. In a meal in the ancient world, it communicated acceptance. And so they're doing a meal before the face of God, actually for the disciples, with God in the flesh. So it meant they were at peace with God, but it also meant they were at peace with each other. And this is what we're, we're representing. Every time we take this bread, we take this cup, we're, we're being reminded, no, we're reconciled with God and we're reconciled with each other, that's already a reality. That's already been bought and paid for by Jesus. And then we're given the opportunity to then actually live that out. And so let's, let's remember these realities, and then let's live these realities in our church and in the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have shown no partiality 
Most of us in the room are not Jewish. Lord, we've never even heard the gospel had you not insisted that your church get outside of its cultural walls and push into places where the gospel was needed desperately. So God, thank you that that has been done for us. And Lord, now we we pray that God, you would do a work in us who are just ordinary Christians, just like those first Christians were. And that by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, that we too would be moved out of our places of, of comfort and into places where we're depending on you in new ways and bringing the gospel in places that it's never been brought before. Lord, we pray for the Uyghur people. Most of them never even heard the name of Jesus. We pray for Jeremy, who's out there with his family, and others that are working hard to get the gospel to this people group. God, would you give them all the resources that they need, the the strength that they need, the wisdom that they need, God, to get the gospel out to the 12 million people, God, that need your gospel. And Lord, others that need it as well, God, that you've placed on our own hearts. Lord, help us to have the courage to embrace that call. But thank you, Lord, that you, you're the first one that came across that divide of sin and separation and did that for our salvation. God, thank you. Thank you for what this bread and this cup represent. And may you bless it. May you bless this time of communion with you and with one another. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have come here this morning and you're 